the last thing you want to do as a white dude is be like, hey, I'm one of the good ones. But like, if you could just have the conversation naturally, that's cool. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. It was very, I let her tell me what she thought. Not, I wasn't telling her what to think. So. No, I know. Definitely cut that out. <laughs> That'll be the intro. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the, uh, the, my grandmother calling the Game Boy, the Playboy was going to be the intro. I had that oh, it has from to the be beginning. It's fantastic. Uh, my late grandmother used to call the Game Boy. She would call it a Playboy. <laughs> she goes, Nick, when I was like, I don't know, six or seven, where's your Playboy? And my dad used to think that was so fucking funny. That's I mean, <laughs> so, where's your Playboy? Playing like Pokemon? That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That was a 40 and slip, Grandma. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny. She was cool. She would sneak me cigarettes when I was older, too. Oh, so she definitely knew what Playboy was, too. Like. Yeah. She was just messing with everybody. Yeah, probably. And spliced them all together to make it seem like one after yeah. the other. Welcome back to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with Levi, and tonight we're joined by our compatriot for our Mark series, Mike from Trend Leftist. How you doing, buddy? Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. So tonight, as Mike's presence may indicate, we're going to take a little bit of a break, I guess, from Palestine, although I'm sure it'll come up at some point tonight, and return to the 18th Brumaire. Uh, we did our first part on this, I don't know what it maybe a couple months ago at this point. Um, Back in we, September. Yeah, we've been kind of busy with other things, both on this and in real life. So we're back to kind of clean this one up, wrap it up, as always, a really timely text. But with that, Levi, I'll just turn it right back over to you, buddy, and we'll finish her off. In the first part on the 18th premiere of Louis Bonaparte, we dug deep into the theory undergirding Marx's understanding of political history. This episode, I hope we can dig deep into the political history undergirding Marx's understanding of theory. As I outlined in the previous part, Marx argued the peasantry, the lumpen proletariat, and the unawakened members of the working class are counter-revolutionary forces which fell prey to the promises of the petit bourgeois ideology. Elsewhere, he and Engels are quoted as arguing the lumpen proletariat are necessarily reactionary forces within bourgeois society. It's easy enough to agree with Marx as we read the Brumaire, since he presented it within a well-reasoned dialectic history. But that's what the heavy caveat that all I know about this moment is what Marx presented here. I may feel different if I were an expert in French history, but as none of us, uh, as far as I know, are 19th century Francophiles, we can instead argue if we believe his analysis continues to be relevant in understanding our current political struggle. After all, that was the underlying reason why we began this reading series. While we may not have an American peasantry, feel free to disagree with me, the material conditions which Marx argued made them an inadequate class for revolutionary ferment may continue under our new modern agrarian relations. On the other hand, there are still many vagrants, criminals, and perpetually unemployed and unemployable who make up the modern lumpen proletariat. Especially so if we consider the more than 1.2 million people currently residing in prison on United States soil. I'm also officially releasing the embargo on citing our Marxist friends, so bring in Franz Fanon, Ho Chi Minh, Vladimir Lenin, 
Mao Zedong, and the Black Panthers. <laughs> nice. So I'm Levi. Let's go around. Let me know how many times, if ever, you've referenced the 18th Brumaire in your thinking since we recorded the first part of this reading all the way back in September. <laughs> At least a few. But I don't know. I don't have a hard count on it. <laughs> I've heard the term lumpen proletariat actually come up a few times in reference to Palestine. I mean, I think we've at least done the whole tragedy and farce thing a few times on this podcast since. Probably the easiest thing to always reference about this one. Um, I don't think I've found myself referencing this so much as just since you're allowing us to, but I definitely have been referencing the Lenin weeks that seem like decades for sure. Like that, that has been more often the quote that I find myself thinking of nowadays. Yeah, we're definitely living in one of those decades. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a few at this point. I think this is still relevant. Again, I don't want to return to that framework that I posited in our first episode. It's relevant as long as we're adapting the methodology to conditions and not trying to apply it from a very rote mechanical perspective. Yeah, I think as we argued last episode, there's no reason to be rote and mechanical about it that Marx himself never really approached his own ideology that way. He was constantly adjusting and figuring out what was happening in the world around him as it was happening. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways you could look at certain sections of this at least, and I'll, but even Marx adjusting upon the earlier Marx, which again sounds kind of trite and obvious, but I think there's obvious references here if we understand the political and historical events going on at the time where Marx may have had a different view on something he's cr criticizing in this piece earlier on in his life even. I mean, the man was a critical guy even of himself. So although most of this part is going to be on chapters 2 through 7, with 7 being the conclusion, I think our greatest focus is probably going to be on chapters 3 and 5. But that said, I'd like to revisit chapter 1 for a moment, to ask a question about the history which Marx builds there. Approaching the end of chapter 1, Marx wrote, quote, The National Assembly, which met on May 4th, 1848, had emerged from the national elections and represented the nation. It was a live-in protest against the pretensions of the February days and was to reduce the results of the revolution to the bourgeois scale. In vain, the Paris proletariat, which immediately grasped the character of this national assembly, attempted on May 15th, a few days after it met, to negate its existence forcibly, to dissolve it, to disintegrate Again, into its constituent parts, the organic form in which the proletariat was threatened by the reacting spirit of the nation. As is known, May 15th had no other result but that of removing Blanqui and his comrades, that is, the real leaders of the proletariat party, from the public stage for the entire duration of the cycle we are considering. End quote. This appeared to be the beginning of the farce. Although the central figure, according to the title, is Louis Bonaparte, the first farcical actors are the revolutionary proletariat themselves. For these revolutionary actors allied themselves with the many factions of the bourgeois and the petit bourgeois to overthrow the bourgeois king, Louis-Philippe, in revolution. The Republican bourgeois allowed the revolutionary proletariat to participate in the Constituent National Assembly, which met to establish the new constitution but it excluded them from the powerful executive commission. The revolutionary proletariat, based in Paris, took the mantle of the first French Revolution 
by returning to the barricades and attempted to dissolve the body. But the bourgeoisie crushed this movement in the name of protecting the revolution. Thus, Marx writes in chapter 2, quote, The Republican bourgeois faction, which had long regarded itself as the legitimate heirs of the July monarchy, thus found its fondest hopes exceeded. It attained power, however, not as it had dreamed under Louis-Philippe, through a liberal revolt of the bourgeois against the throne, but through a rising of the proletariat against capital, a rising laid low with grapeshot. What it had conceived as the most revolutionary event turned out in reality to be the most counter-revolutionary. The fruit fell into its lap, but it fell from the tree of knowledge, not from the tree of life. I don't understand what he's getting at with that last sentence, but we'll go beyond that. This immediate defeat, coming so soon after bourgeois cooperation, delivered a body blow to the proletariat revolutionaries, but the capital under siege meant the bourgeois had to give some victory to the proletariat. Universal suffrage. Guarantees of freedom of speech, of association, of assembly, of education, of religion, and quote-unquote personal liberty. So in all that, I think it's telling that Marx reserves his first barbs, his first critiques for the revolutionaries themselves, rather than Louis himself or any of the bourgeois. People agree with my reading here. Does this history rhyme with modern history? What might be the, even if contradictory, political lessons of this history? Yeah, I mean, I think that reading is right. And to get back to what I was saying off the top, I think it is fair to say that indirectly, Marx here is criticizing his younger self in some ways. Again, this is given his initial positions, you know, on the relationship between the German proletariat and the emergent bourgeoisie there, right? Like, I think he and Engels initially envisioned in the early days that the proletariat would necessarily have to ally itself with the bourgeoisie to overthrow the remnants of the old feudal regime in Germany, right? So I think, again, it's not one-to-one here, but he's looking at kind of the failures of possibly that same kind of thinking in this moment in France, right? And ultimately, getting back to how this may rhyme or how what we might be able to take from this, I think we do have to understand that alliances within these movements, alliances between classes are on some level going to be inevitable, but we have to be realistic about what those look like and steel ourselves to continue to fight on. And I think history bears that out, right? Look at China and basically every national liberation movement in the global South. These movements all contain the contradiction of class alliances, right? Where the bourgeoisie, elements of the peasantry, whatever it may be, depending on the local conditions, kind of had these alliances. And theorists from Mao to Fanon have warned us of the dangers after the, the the dangers of these alliances and dangers of capitulation after the revolution is one. So on a domestic level, my read is that we as a class have to fully internalize that concessions, if that's what we're fighting for, however welcome they may be, cannot permanently end class antagonisms and the class war. We should fight for them, take them, and then continue to fight for more with a realistic appraisal of the forces on the ground at all times. And that should drive every decision that we make. 
we see what they got here, guarantees of freedom, suffrage, association, education. I mean, these are all things liberals want to give anyway, right? These are liberal values, so-called. So that's a very easy concession for the French Republicans to make at that time. And it's still good for the proletariat to get these things coming out (laughs) of whatever conditions they were in France at that time. But again, is that enough? Just this nebulous idea of personal liberty? Yeah, it's funny. Like After having listened to the rest of it, and trying to absorb as the best I can with my terrible ability to pay attention to the details of like who takes what office and the ins and outs and the gyrations of the government offices and everything. You try to take away like the best lessons from it, right? And I would like to come away from the Brumaire with like some solid lessons about how to best navigate a revolution. I don't want to give a nod to the recently deceased Kissinger here, but I feel like one of the big lessons that come out of this is that realpolitik is a thing like speaking of your really good point nick like you have to take realistic assessments of what's going on on the ground like the most principled people the most competent people whoever you think is the most deserved to lead does not always win out uh that's not how history that's not how the present plays out and you can criticize every group involved you can criticize the proletarians and all the people who are the power players I almost come away with it feeling like it's all just more of a Rube Goldberg machine that you almost cannot predict. And it's so nebulous and so unpredictable, but you should come away with it. Like you said, Nick, with lessons about how to assess things in, in the reality, like on their own terms, rather than to be dogmatic and principled and try to think that just being the best or being the most principled in some way is going to win out in the end. Like sometimes cheaters win, unfortunately. I think that's a lesson that more people who are willing to like, who don't show shy away from authoritarianism are usually more willing to accept that like you may actually need some propaganda. You may need some like secret police or something like that. People reading this in the 1800s would have probably known a lot more because they would have been following this in the news. So these things are sort of just like shot out there by Marx. He doesn't explain them very well. He doesn't revisit them. Like he doesn't explain who those members of the revolutionary party are. He just sort of says their name and that's it. But I think you have something there to, when you say the realistic assessments. And I think there's also something to be said about this concept of ultra-leftism, although I might be using that term incorrectly, because Marx seems to be extremely critical of the fact that the proletariat revolutionaries got into this National Assembly, even though they didn't get to the most powerful positions, and then they attempt to overthrow the Assembly by resigning and taking to the streets after already receiving their position within the Assembly itself. It's as though they can't take the victory for what it is and sort of build on it. And that's the first farce. I mean, that's where he calls the revolutionary proletariats taking to the street like the first French Revolution. He doesn't say that in a positive sense. He says that in a way that he's criticizing them for attempting to remake the revolution after they've already made the revolution. On some level, you have to be realistic about the limits of each action that you take. So not only do you realize that these people you've made allies with are not going to be there. They're not going to have your back all the way through. They're going to relegate you to these less than powerful positions or these negative positions even. But you have to find ways to use those positions and leverage them to the best of your ability, not get to them and then resign. He seems to be very critical of that concept. Although I think that's where I'm saying there's sort of a contradictory element here. Because they got to those positions by making these alliances and taking those alliances too far And then Marx is almost criticizing them for not having their cake and eating it too. Like, how would that even play out if they're already relegated to these weak positions? I don't get the sense that any of these people, 
got to any positions of power like and had to cede some of their basic moral tenets. Like you would have to, if you got to the positions of politics here, you'd have to like really be in, like you'd have to have no principles whatsoever. So yeah, I, I wonder why, like would do you really expect them to do in that situation if not? I just get the impression that here they had much more of a case for changing the system from the inside than anybody would stand to reason today. And it sounds like that's what Marx's criticism is, is he criticizes them for resigning. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, I think like his criticism is coming from a place of them not recognizing the power that they actually had in that moment. And whether that be like through those legislative bodies or just through continuing to organize along a solid proletarian political line, um, that they didn't actually actualize their position at that point, whether through violence or working through the mechanisms at that point in time. But he seems to think that like the proletarians essentially died for nothing. They got shot by grape shot for the bourgeois Republicans in this moment. Right. It was the bourgeois Republicans that were really able to maneuver the real politic of the situation and claim that they were defending the revolution by attacking the revolutionaries. I mean, they were able to use it to their best effect. Whereas being on the street, they had no leverage. They had no pulpit. They weren't speaking to a public. They were literally attacking the thing that they had previously worked to build. And I guess that gets to kind of trite questions about what does the left do in the United States if it ever reaches electoral positions? So this is where it might be an issue of history, that the literal monarchy is still being overthrown in this moment. But what can we take about this in terms of what would a leftist look like? How would they behave in the House of Representatives if they ever get elected or as a local governor? Or as something more powerful than a city councilman? I think for leftists to be in that position, they have to recognize that they're not going to use the machinery of the bourgeois state to actually change how the bourgeois system actually functions, right? So in a position like that, what can you do in lieu of that? In lieu of thinking that you're going to change this system by getting the right number of votes in the House? And I think you use that platform to radicalize people, to continue to mobilize people, to get people out onto the streets, to build structures of dual power, which I want to talk about a little bit later as well, right? To integrate in labor unions around like a voice as like a kind of like an, you wanted that leader to be kind of like the embodiment of a movement, not necessarily someone's going to come in and again, change things from the inside using these mechanisms that the bourgeois have in their service. Just sort of like to correct myself in the way I phrase this. So I made this exceptionally American, but I think a better example might actually be the rewriting of the constitution that I believe happened in the last two years in Chile, because that's really what's happening in this history is they're writing a constitution for how the mechanisms of state are going to behave. So this would be if somehow there was a constitutional convention and leftists were somehow elected to represent the people at this constitutional convention. That's so far afield from reality that I don't even know that that's worth discussing. I mean, is the assumption there that this representation is still in the minority? Yeah, I suppose so. So I think my point still stands, even in that situation, all you can really do is mobilize people to show your force that if we don't get these concessions within that constitution at that moment in time, that some shit that you might not like might happen. Yeah, leveraging that force, if only as a symbolic representation of 
the power that could be on the streets at any moment if things don't go well. Right. Rather than immediately just going to the street, immediately calling for a national strike, immediately going for the most extreme response. And I guess that's perfect. That's really what real politic is in a lot of ways. It's sort of balancing the power that you have and the ways that you can use it. My first thought, I, was, I would love to see some like members of the squad, just any progressive politician, even if it's like a local office, whatever, you're a governor or something, uh, just get the gumption that, to use the National Guard the way that Republicans seem to. Like, they seem to use the, the National Guard for whatever the fuck they feel like. Like, a Democrat goes out of line, leaves the state because they don't want to vote. They'll send the National Guard after them. Like, why doesn't a uh, exceedingly liberal politician send the National Guard after, like, the local clan that they know exists in their state? Like, just go after the white nationalist militias. Like, we all know they're there. Oh, it's almost like the same guys would be going after themselves. It's like, it's all these like unspoken things about this country that we could never relate one-to-one to these past events because we live in such the fourth Reich as it is. Like we can't even like relate these things. Like when we want to get like advice from the past for what leftists should do, it's like we're in uncharted territory, my friends. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I was going to follow that up with at some level, like talking about getting socialists in the house. I mean, I don't know what that means at this point in time. Like we allegedly have them <laughs> <laughs> by himself, right? Yeah. We're supposed to have them for us in this particular context, Mike, to your point, we need to be looking beyond this. Cause again, even, even if somebody goes in with good intentions, they're either not going to make it or, you know, their good intentions were <laughs> an obfuscation and that's accepting somebody like Elmer Benson in the 1930s, as we talked about with Anders Lee. I think we're still very far from a governor getting in there that will actually use the National Guard to shut down the titans of labor and force them to follow their own contracts with their unions. Dream. It's the dream, for sure. And it's worth thinking about, you know? We need some positive things to think about every once in a while. I think there's a lot of positive things to think about. I just don't know if that's on the table. I mean, mm-hmm. as much as we want to say... You know, we want to learn lessons from this history. Like, we also should recognize that, I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen, but the moment for something like that could very well have passed in this system. We could have jumped the shark already mm-hmm. for, for, for where that kind of thing works, you know? I, 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 that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another option we have to keep as we assess the conditions. <laughs> I love when I get to talk to other people who are not crazy. <laughs> How dare you call me sane? <laughs> Oh, my God. So near the beginning of chapter three, Marx wrote, quote, Upon the different forms of property, upon the social conditions of existence, rises an entire superstructure of distinct and peculiar formed sentiments, illusions, modes of thought, and views of life. The entire class creates and forms them out of its material foundations and out of the corresponding social relations. The single individual who derives them through tradition and upbringing may imagine that they form the real motives and the starting point of his activity. Here, Marx appeared to be using the dialectical by focusing on the historical basis of social conditions and relations. Things which appear to be quote-unquote social relations contain quote-unquote material foundations upon which they are built are in turn coded as quote-unquote tradition and upbringing a fetish you observe or act out in daily life without critical concern. These fetishes are thus not the real motivation for action, but are rather the form of these motivations. But what can political agitators do with this information? What actions reshape the public within a mode of society consider the other, if not by working within, the present form? 
So this is sort of the question of how do we get beyond the limitations of thought that exist today? Ironically, this makes me think of like the right doing the what is a woman thing. They're literally pushing people, I think, inadvertently, sometimes, probably not often because people are dumb, but sometimes pushing people to be more progressive because it's like that thing where they are relying purely on ideology. Like this paragraph you were reading earlier, we were saying that the single individual who derives them through tradition and upbringing may imagine that they form the real motives and the starting point of his activity. It's like, mm-hmm. that is ideology. I just, I have yeah. to say it in the Zizek voice, that's like, ideology. And by, they're purely relying on your idea in your head of what is a woman. But then if you really nail that down, like if you actually wanted to have a rational conversation and it wasn't just for TikTok style short clips, you would figure out that no matter what criteria they pick, there is an exception to that quote unquote rule that they make for what a woman is. And then at the end of the day, they would have to admit that their idea of what a woman and therefore gender is a social construct. It has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with like chromosomes or genitals or anything else that they would like to rely on. Otherwise, they would have to exclude people that they actually do consider women because of their upbringing and the ideology. So it's like these people are pushing the question because they're making they're bringing it to like a very tip of saying like this is we're relying on the purely spiritual and instinctual definition that is brought up in you from growing up in society, but is fictional. And it's almost ironic that they would be the ones to push that when it like brings it to that point, but you can do that with almost every concept of ideology. They're trying to reinforce the fetishes, the social constructs that make capitalism work well. When we talk about gender roles and the family unit, I think, cause that plays into this conversation as well. And they're just trying in the unpaid labor. Right. And they're just trying in a reactionary way to like reinforce those things, which keep capitalism going on a social level. So I think there's a lot we can do on that side of things, just trying to normalize our comrades and fellow working class people that don't identify within the confines of what is socially acceptable as determined by the capitalist class, right? Trying to tie expressions of that identity and the full realization of that identity into a radical revolutionary working class politics, right? To kind of free that up. But I think on like a lower level, Tied into that is there's things like art we can do. Like we were talking about proletarian art in the chat the other night, but just to kind of give expression to ideas that move beyond, like within the superstructure that exists, but give expression to ideas that inspire people to try to move beyond that. And that's just one example. But then I think about it beyond on more of like the macroeconomic, political, governmental level. And then my mind goes into how do we build dual power? as Lenin references, right? So the Soviets, like the literal Soviets, like the workers' councils that existed in 1917 and the Bolsheviks had organized and built strength up to such an extent that they functionally had set up a separate governing body alongside the provisional government at that time. It was absolutely weak, but it was an organized body that could demonstrate to people that it was striving to define what a state could and should achieve when that state was put into service of the working class. And I'm not saying that we can mimic the Soviets exactly in this moment, but we can and should seek to organize to such an extent that the sheer force of our unity and coordination can demonstrate to working people that we can move beyond capitalism by actually affecting their daily lives with mechanisms that do not exist within the definition of the capitalist context. This can be done, and it's being done in a myriad of different ways. It doesn't, as I said, it doesn't have to be a replication of the worker Soviets. 
And I think of indigenous governance structures here, and even structures of Palestinian governance that have been bred out of resistance in the face of, in the face of Zionist domination. I mean, you could really consider the government of Hamas as a dual power structure, right? Because like, they're not like a quote unquote state on like the national level, but again, they figured out a way to build resistance and organization and take care of people, even within like the government that occupies, even outside the confines of what the government that occupies them. They exert enough control that literally every bad thing that happens in Gaza is their fault and not the IDF or Israeli's fault. <laughs> right. Yeah. They have that much, <laughs> that much of a government that like all the borders, all the gates, it's actually controlled by Hamas. Like don't, don't let anybody fool you. Like it's, uh, <laughs> if you ask the IDF. <laughs> right. But the point is, is that people see that something can exist beyond Zionist occupation in that example. Right. And it's because real people built that structure to show that and demonstrate and actually conduct the work to say, hey, look, you don't have to live within this context. And again, if we just take it back to like living in the U.S. within the capitalist context, what structures can we build that can actually take care of people moving beyond that, moving beyond what exists, moving beyond what they think they have to do on a daily basis within this society right now. And again, that requires a lot of organization and a lot of coordination that doesn't happen overnight. And just because we say or wish it into existence doesn't mean it's going to happen. But I think that is a real way that we could break through some of these. I mean, the ideology. Yeah, I really feel like touching on the Palestinian example is really pertinent, obviously, because it's ongoing. But thinking about it from the American perspective, people are joining organizations and seeing that they're reflecting their values and their structure of governance far more than their own representatives or representing their own views or how they want to see government behave. And it's really becoming, a, on the most hopeful note I can ring, it's becoming a hopeful moment where people are actually starting to realize that there are alternative structures that they can be a part of, that they feel that they can exert their political will. Whereas maybe somebody thought, I'll vote for president every four years, I'll vote for my congressman every two years, and that's about the limit of my political action. Now that they see that there's a genocide being broadcast on social media, they see that it's actually more important for them to be out on the street and to force their government to take a position that they don't want to take. And as they see the obstinance grow harder and harder, because this is a bedrock issue, Palestine is a bedrock issue for the capitalist system as it's constructed, it's going to hit a wall in a literal sense to the point where they realize that the government as it's structured will never listen to them, will never politically respond to their pressure. And that's how they sympathize with a group like Hamas, no matter how many times CNN will try to make them negate that sympathy. Uh, and just to build off that point, I think these rallies and these demonstrations, I mean, some people write them off as like, oh, you know, it's ineffectual. There's not direct action or anything like that. And again, I don't think we're, in my analysis, we're not necessarily at that point yet because we don't have the organization and the state is extremely repressive, right? And I don't get me wrong, I salute the people that undertake those efforts, right? Depending on what's going on. But these rallies and just this visibility and demonstrating that there are socialist organizations and people that actually care about this that are going to call out the government right now has been huge just to try to build a movement. I can't tell you how many conversations we've had and people that we've brought in just in the past two months saying, hey, I've been feeling really politically isolated, kind of out on an island. I don't know what to do in the, in the next year. But man, I saw, you know, you guys out on the streets. I see you guys on the streets every week. And it seems like, hey, maybe I should get involved. That fucking matters. And it's incredible because at this time last year, 
if somebody was going to tell me that there was massive political motivation or people back out on the streets or joining socialist organizations, I would have had to assume that, I don't know, Trump was surging in the polls or that something was really motivating within the American psyche that's kind of flitting and, you know, comes back every four years and doesn't really matter. Whereas this feels way more concrete, that the criticisms that people are making about the actions of Israel aren't going to go away with the next election. These are things that people are going to remember. This is the apartheid moment. I don't think people are going to go back to the way things were. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, it's a really good point. So also near the beginning of chapter three, Marx wrote, quote, And as the party of order, they, the landed and the industrial bourgeoisies, exercised more unrestricted and sterner domination over the other classes of society than ever previously. A domination that, in general, was only possible under the form of the parliamentary republic. For only under this form could the two great divisions of the French bourgeoisie unite, and thus put the rule of their class, instead of a regime of a privileged faction of it, on the order of the day. I take this to mean that to act as a class against the proletariat, the landed and industrial bourgeoisies united in spite of their antagonisms. One exploited tenants for rents, the other exploited workers for surplus value. It's also easy to assume a deep cultural division, or at least as deep a division as between many members of the proletariat. Marx provided the agency to unify, to overcome these differences, to the bourgeois, but, as noted in the opening of the previous part, argued that the proletariat became more uniform only as capitalism grew ever more omnipresent around the world. As capital homogenized, ethnicity, sex, race, gender, and other cultural concepts might also homogenize, and thus, working class agency might occur through cooperation based on a shared working class culture. According to Herbert Marcuse, writing in 1969, something of the opposite came to pass since 1851. The international bourgeoisie grew more unified, while the proletariat grew more divided and distracted. According to Marcuse, quote, The ruling class has learned how to rule. Marx did not foresee how quickly and how closely capitalism would approach this potentiality, and how the forces which were supposed to explode it would become instruments of its rule. In effect, the bourgeoisie became more unified and grew to understand the need to stoke division within the proletariat. How does that strike people? I just saw a headline today that Amazon is hiring this very wealthy, very famous union-busting law firm as their employee relations department. Like They're just bringing them in. The guy who runs the firm has like this enormous mansion on an estate that he lives on. He's just been union-busting for decades. And they're bringing him in. He's going to be employee relations. And uh, yeah, it's going to be great. I think it's going to, be, going to work really well. He's not going to sow any division at all. That's not like anyone in Amazon read anything from Marx and knows that unions are valuable and that they should split them up as, in any way possible. Somebody's taking lessons from these things is all I'm saying. Someone is. <laughs> yeah, that speaks to the class unity of the ruling class, I think. In a broad sense, Mike, to that point, I think Marcuse's analysis strikes me as mostly true. Uh, I don't want to paint with the 
broadest brush on the notion that the working class and the whole became instruments of the bourgeois rule. But the fact remains that the ruling class has gotten very good at dividing us based on differences of race, religion, gender, ethnicity, nationality, whatever, right? And like, that's a good example. Unprincipled identity politics in the U.S., the so division on the electoral lines to exacerbating ethnic tensions in the final days of Yugoslavia, right? The, the ruling class wants to keep us into smaller isolated pockets that they can more easily manage. I mean, when we talk about it on like a global sense, when they talk about balkanizing Russia, they want Russia broken into pockets. uh, And they did it with Iraq as well. Blinken had a proposal to divide Iraq into three different ethnic enclaves that they could more easily control and pit against each other, right? So this is a tried and true tactic and they know it very well. It doesn't always work. It didn't work in Iraq. It's not working in Russia. And I think it's working less in on the domestic level, ignoring the chuds. But, you know, it's still there and they've gotten very good at it. So we have to fight it. So I think it's our job to foster an ideology, which because I don't think we're ever going to. I think there's always going to be a place for ethnic traditions that should be celebrated and everything like that. But we should adopt celebration of those to a politics that centers working class solidarity and a working class identity while again recognizing and celebrating that those differences still exist i think there's a lot to be hopeful for though i mean especially with the amazon example think about the union drive at amazon like think about chris smalls and what's going on there i mean now at least in this moment if this had been done 10 years ago is there any mechanism to fight back? Maybe the union is starting at that point to fight against that organization that comes in, but at least now there's a body, a foundation, which hopefully somebody can utilize to fight against that obvious, <laughs> obvious transgression against workers' rights. Not as codified by this state, but at least we should all understand that people have a right not to be fucked with in that way. Yeah, and I don't want to say come off as I'm completely dismissing the concept or to say that even these sort of corporations are playing multidimensional chess at all moments. But I remember back around Black Lives Matter, there was a lot of talk around the sort of negative effect that quote unquote sensitivity training was actually having on people, that some of the sensitivity training was based on common sense concepts of differences between ethnicity, races, sexes, genders, that although it was in the language of somehow evening or softening these differences, it's very training and the way it was set up was actually designed to enforce that these differences exist and can never be changed. And this just sort of reminds me of the effectiveness of one of these organizations, like Mike mentioned, that they'll come in and they never just say outright, like, we're here to make your lives more miserable. We're here to divide you. Instead, they'll use other tactics. They might say that, you know, we understand that a lot of you need separate training and separate treatment. That's why we're going to provide a leg up to this group. And they'll say it in a way that it sounds nice on paper, but it's clearly designed to create resentment because they're not building a history around why that's being provided. It's being provided in a way that's meant to engorge people's sense of being slighted. The ruling class understands that people know or believe that there are innate differences and they might pull on those concepts of difference in language that's actually coded as liberal or sensitive. And that's why I added that caveat at the end that like whatever we're building should recognize these things. But again, it cannot be divorced from the working class identity and just taking care of people broadly on like a human level. 
to put a point on what I'm thinking of, it's sort of the resentment that pushed somebody like Clarence Thomas from being a radical black nationalist in the 60s into being a reactionary nationalist through the 70s, that he started to imbibe that idea that these leg up programs, these ways that were passed by Joe Biden himself are actually ways to insult a people by giving out handouts. And I, I think that's a very powerful ideology on the right, that these very facile attempts to provide equity are actually ways of keeping people down. And I guess this would require an actual reading to sort of go through that history. It's kind of mind-blowing to me. Like, Nick, you mentioned balkanization. And I feel like the right is not only advocating, but kind of preparing for balkanization of the U.S., because they feel like that's the kind of natural result of the division that they see happening. And it's like, it's it's just so crazy to me that like your average right winger now is like kind of half prepper, kind of half homesteader and literally stoking division, like the division and like the balkanization of the U S that they claim to love thinking that it's going to give them more freedom in the end when they can have their homestead with no government imposing pronouns and taxes. Like they literally think that like, pronouns and taxation of like 22% of their income maybe is like the biggest oppression and that they will be better off when this whole thing collapses and they get the Afghanistan America like that they I cannot tell you guys how much they revere people who wage guerrilla resistance against even like the the army that they <laughs> that they think is going to dominate the rest of the world that they think is going to somehow beat China and Russia even though it couldn't beat Afghanistan it just blows my mind, like the the contradictions, but that is the natural result. And like, you can sit here and wonder like whether it was a deep state conspiracy to get the right wing to advocate for the dismantling of itself and like the government, or that was just the natural result of stoking division rather than a collective kind of identity among Americans, because individualism is the rule of the day. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it was a grand arc conspiracy or whether it was just the natural results of the tenets you value in, in the West. Like, it doesn't matter. The result is going to be the same that, like, it's getting more and more divisive and there's no end in sight. And it's just so ironic. Inshallah that we do get some form of balkanization in that indigenous nations get self-determination. <laughs> but the best part about that is that always the libertarians and the chuds will be walling themselves off they'll be buying a bunch of concrete and beans or whatever they're going to do to have their compounds and then the people with the collectivist identities whether they're indigenous or just leftist like they will be providing for people and helping each other and they will be the ones who right. survive because they will be doing it right <laughs> exactly you can get your little one acre of citizen sovereignty whatever and be a lunatic in your bunker have fun trying to build community with those people dude. yeah <laughs> yeah we'll be surviving out here yeah, it's that weird sort of contradiction where they think that, you know, America's coming apart at the seams, that it's not collective enough. Yet they sort of say that America needs to be more individualist in order to get back to that notion of America. It's like it, there's no conversation with that ideology because it's just built on contradictions. Yeah. Probably a good place to segue into the uh, petty bourgeois ideology now. <laughs> Trying to rush this one no, along, I'm just, huh? I'm just saying. I know it's going to come up again, and I'm anxious. Let's do it. In chapter three, Marx wrote the following, 
which to me feels like a concept explored politically, which he later explored as an economic concept in Volume 1 of Capital. Quote, The peculiar character of social democracy is epitomized in the fact that democratic republican institutions are demanded as a means not of doing away with two extremes, capital and wage labor, but of weakening their antagonism and transforming it into harmony. However different the means proposed for the attainment of this end may be, however much it may be trimmed with more or less revolutionary notions, the content remains the same. This content is the transformation of society in a democratic way, but a transformation with the bounds of the petit bourgeois. Only one must not get the narrow-minded notion that the petit bourgeois, on principle, wishes to enforce an egoistic class interest. Rather, it believes that the special conditions of its emancipation are the general conditions within whose frame alone modern society can be saved and the class struggle avoided. You really believe it. All the way back in 1850, no less. Can I just say that I think the petty bourgeois analysis, that ideology is the one class, well, I don't want to say just that, but this one rings very true for me. Especially as it relates to like things like the peasantry and the lump and proletariat. But this one, I think, has stood the test of time in a lot of ways. Especially from the perspective that we're sitting in, in the heart of the empire. Right. Here. Take this line about, quote unquote, freedom from chapter six of Capital. Quote, For the transformation of money into capital, therefore, the owner of money must find the free worker available on the commodity market. And this worker must be free in the double sense that a free individual can be disposed of his labor power as his own commodity, and that, on the other hand, he has no other commodity for sale, i.e., he is rid of them. He is free of all the objects needed for the realization of his labor power. But that's 272 to 273 in Capital Volume 1. In order for the individual to feel content with their exploitation, they must feel they have a choice in it. Just as for an individual to feel content with their government, they must feel they have a choice in it. In both cases, that freedom of choice is an illusion. It's designed to create the notion of choice. As noted in the previous part, the petit bourgeois are those who believe their hard work will be rewarded, and that one's economic lot in life reflects their personal worth. This overlaps heavily with those who believe voting matters that Trump will fix their problems, that Bidenomics will lift all boats, or whatever great man might save them. Although the Democratic and Republican parties provide differing flavors and excuses to keep themselves from the reality of the absurdity of their positions, the act of voting keeps the proletariat in line, or at least historically has. This all reminds me of the cheeky answer to, quote, why does America have no influential socialist organizational history? End quote. The answer goes, because America has no working class. Instead, it has only a class of temporarily embarrassed billionaires. Socialism struggles in the United States because of the overwhelming grasp of the petit bourgeois ideology. At the same time, America has among the greatest an increasing disgust with our own political institutions among developed nations. Does this mean the grip of the petit bourgeois hustle culture is starting to loosen, or is it just taking another form? Both of them at once. I mean, it's definitely taken another form since it has when Marx was talking about it in America in 2023. But I'm going to cop out and say both at once. 
and that this trend is still present, but also people are seeking for other alternatives, I think, at this moment. Because on one hand, we have that ever-present refrain of pedophiles and anarcho-capitalist chumps demanding less government interference in the economy, and that continues to grow loud, right? I mean, that is the basis, I think, in a lot of ways for at least the economic sentiment for MAGA. Mm -hmm. Just leave us alone, get out of our lives, let us get back to it, and everything will be okay. I mean, that is MAGA. And I think we can certainly chalk that up to a large extent to angry white dudes. I think we should center that, right? We're already largely okay. So we shouldn't dismiss it out of hand, though, because that is still not an insignificant political force. As we're talking about assessing the real conditions on the ground, that is a force that we have to contend with, right? And I don't think it's just in the U.S. because Argentina just voted in a Reddit anarcho-capitalist, <laughs> read as fascist, by 3 million votes, which is not insignificant. They had a 75% turnout, I think, in that election, right? So this ideology has transcended just America, right? And I think this is testament to this idea that this petty bourgeois ideology is something in a capitalist context that is going to be present. But domestically, I think in general, there is a strong anti-authority current within America. We see, even on the left, a lot of anarchist organization in our various cities. And I think we have to attribute that at some level to this American psyche. I don't want to say categorically so, but there is this strong individualist streak. I mean, even if we look at the history of socialist movements in this country, they have been characterized by anarchism in a lot of ways. That said, I do believe more and more people are seeing through this. And I will cite as evidence a massive number of people organizing with openly socialist organizations in the fight for Palestine. We can add on, as you alluded to, the fact that popular polling indicates that there is growing interest in socialism among younger generations. And I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I'll repeat again. Rallying and interest are great, but they're not enough in and of themselves. We have to build that revolutionary party to actually combat the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Very good points. You guys have seen the meme before of um, there's like the woman who looks very nice and she's got like 50 microphones in front of her. And then to her left, there's like a dude who looks all disheveled and he's got like one microphone in front of him and like no one is giving a shit about him. And that's, I think, the best meme to describe the bourgeois control over media, whether it's the Internet and the algorithms or the traditional media. And I feel like for a long time that has been the story of all of our media. And I still kind of maintain that something changed about even internet algorithms. Like when the U.S. took over the TikTok algorithm like a, a year and a half or so ago. Like, I don't know. I don't, I haven't nailed down exactly what changed, but something feels different. It's just kind of a vibe thing, though. So I can't, don't slight me. Don't quote me. <laughs> but I feel like when you say this like hustle culture thing, like I said earlier about the what is a woman thing being unintentional, anti-cis propaganda, like anti-gender propaganda. I feel like tiny homes and people showing off their luxurious fits on like TikTok or whatever are also unintentional anti-capitalist propaganda and like anti-hustle culture propaganda because it's like while tiny homes may seem like a good idea for like a certain subset of people who will acquiesce to that, I think a lot of people, it rubs them the wrong way and they feel like they are giving up. Like they are accepting just the way that like it's a meme among the right that like I will not eat the bug, I will not live in the box or whatever. It's like, there's a certain point where people are sort of deciding they don't like this and they are like, maybe not getting militant about it is the right word, but they're almost there. They're, they're almost getting there. I think they're at least sort of starting to not accept the narrative. And I think that's where this kind of thing comes in, where 
it takes another turn because even the things that the culture tries to offer as solutions end up becoming just anti-capitalist propaganda. Like they end up becoming, they just turn people off so much that like they just can't accept it at a certain point. And I really wanted to tie this in with what you said, Nick, but I feel like it is kind of our job to like make that contradiction more sharp, I guess, like really point that out to people and then offer the alternative that is a collective vision because it does kind of bum me out. It really bums me out that all these anarchists are out in the streets because adventurism is convenient. Like just doing what feels right, getting out there and just being out there with your body feels right. Standing out there with like a Vanguard party, maybe like, I don't know, like that. It feels like LARPy. You know what I mean? Like having to organize and do all this other boring stuff beforehand feels a little LARPy, but I feel like that's why we as Marxists focus on trying to convert more people just to the idea of there is an alternative before we start focusing on getting out in the streets. I think that's why the anarchists are out there first. I think that's kind of how that operates. But yeah, I, I feel like there is a tie in there somewhere. Getting out in the streets is there to the point earlier, just to show people that there is an alternative, right? Show that visibility. You know, like I think I have no issue with people getting out into the streets because that is a very natural, especially with the situation in Palestine. It's a very natural inclination. Like I need to go do something, right? You just have to be and, different from J six yeah. people. Like, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why yeah, I we think, need a program. Know, and like, you can criticize people for, oh, like you're not doing enough, you know? And I, I've seen some criticisms levied at like the rallies that, you know, the ones that you, the three of us attended together, right? Like, but yeah. you know what? What are we going to do? Allegedly. The, there's there's families there. The, <laughs> well, the picture's on Instagram, so it's out there for everybody to see. But um, but um, AI that was created, yeah, that was yeah. generated. But uh, look how many fingers I have. But you know, there's criticism about that. But there's families there. There's you know Muslim kids. There's Christian kids. There's Jewish kids. You know what I mean? But like we have to show that presence as a prerequisite to building anything. I mean, you need people to find you to build something at some level. And I really do think that that's the stage that we're at. Both of our podcasts, we've talked about the history of the U S just decimating what were strong left movements in this country in the past. We're at the stage where, you know, we've had the Iraq war movement. We learned something from that. We've had Bernie, we've had Trump we're, we have the failures of Biden. Now we have this, and you know, I'm, I'm missing so many events in between that, but we have to look at this as part of a continuous process of rebuilding an even stronger left than what we've had historically. And I do think we need to be there for that. But like where it chaps my ass a little bit is just this absolute resistance to organizing on a broader level that really drives me up a wall a little bit, but I don't want to devolve into that too much. I do want to touch on that hustle culture topic a little bit, and I want to give a little bit of an anecdote. I, as you guys know, I do have to travel sometimes for work, you know, criticize me all you want, but I use, you know, as I'm going from like the airport to the various places I'm going, but I use it as an opportunity to talk to people, right? Because I think when we say hustle culture, that is something, an occupation that we associate a lot with hustle culture, right? Like, oh, you can drive on your time off. You know, there's no more nine to five anymore. Now it's nine to nine, right? So people are driving or or making it their full-time job. And I can say like, evaluating people's feelings, driver's feelings from the time that I was in college to now, drivers feel very differently about it because there's essentially, you know, put the hooks in and they're extracting every little bit that they can from these drivers. So there's my, in my sense, a broad disillusionment with just, again, that instantiation of hustle culture, right? And it goes broadly, like where people try this shit that they say, oh, we can make it doing this. And then they fail. 
and they still can't get their material needs met. And then where do they go? And then where do they go? But I'm telling you, I'm having radical conversations. I'm talking to an indigenous woman in Texas the other night, driving through uh, for, to my hotel. And by the end, she, I was talking to her about land back and shit like that. So it's, oh, yeah, it's, fun. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> to try to tie this together, something you said earlier, these angry white dudes, even if they're not doing economically well, will argue on Reddit that a return to individualism and unregulated markets would create a greater society. You know, something that's inherently contradictory. But this is where they might find scapegoats, conspiracy theories, that socialism has creeped into the American government, you know, Uncle Joe, Stalin, Biden. (laughs) We've spoken about this a number of times, but one overwhelming importance of these revolutionary parties is revolutionary education. It creates a space for people to actually get perspectives from living, breathing human beings to have these kinds of conversations. That really gets them towards thinking about these common sense concepts that they've been raised with. Yeah, we need more individualism because that's what America was great. That's what we used to have. So why don't we get back there? It's like, well, that was never the case. That was never true. That's all propaganda. So getting onto the streets is the way to get these like white guy anarcho-capitalists off of Reddit, more or less is what I'm saying. And I think if Steve were here, he'd be able to further prop up Mike's point that the right offers answers that only really papers over the inherent contradictions that actually keep the petite bourgeois in power. So I'm thinking of somebody like Andrew Tate, who was a big hustle culture guy who claimed that all you have to do is hustle harder. You'll get more cars, you'll get more things. Uh, And again, sorry that I'm making a reference to a guy that I think has been in jail for over a year and it's completely irrelevant, but I'm not Steve. I don't listen to this bull crap. So that's the last thing I've listened (laughs) to. That was a good reference. It's valid. I want to piggyback off your point real quick before we move on about the follow up after the streets, because, again, like they see people out there and that's all good. But then there is a an action afterward that requires kind of an intervention to pull people further in. Like they may be interested, but maybe they don't know where to go after that. I'm just saying like one concrete tactic that we've been doing years, we've been holding these like educational events on Palestine. And what a great response it's been. It's been really the only thing that's been personally keeping me sane to feel like I'm affecting some kind of level of change in this madness. Again, I don't want to sound like about it, but like it really does feel like I'm helping to do some work with other people. You have these rallies and you get this visibility and then you put on an educational event and you talk to people for an hour and you let them talk to you and you let conversation kind of flow. And then after the fact, people come up and be like, wow, you know, that was really articulated well. How do I get involved even more? And I really do think that like this is the stage we're at in terms of building a movement and dispelling some of the notions that we have. And it doesn't have to be just about Palestine. Like obviously right now we have to be focused on Palestine. But like once we move beyond that, like, you know, how do we just go out and speak to rural people? Whatever it may be, but how do we do an educational forum about like, you know, what can socialism do for you? Just to connect with people on like a really human level. Because I've had So many people just coming up and talking to me after these rallies and then these forums that follow up and being like, wow, how can I get involved? This spoke to me. So I have a quick story before we move on. I remember being at the left march when that Alito opinion leaked, tearing down the federal right to an abortion. So at the end, there were people making connections to indigenous rights, wages, the need for socialism. They were making that whole argument. And this one woman and her partner of some sort was standing next to her. And he whispers over to her, and I hear it, 
why are they bothering talking about wages and indigenous rights? This is stupid. This is about abortion. She immediately snapped back at him and said, what are you, an idiot? They're all connected. <laughs> That's what we want. Yeah. Exactly. It's like going out to these marches and hearing these perspectives that are not directly for the reason that you went out there is important. You might see the death and the bombing that's happening in Palestine and be reviled to your stomach just based on the violence and want to go out to these marches and have no concept of capitalism or the basis of Zionism. But you're going to hear it when you're out there. You're going to get snippets of it and you're going to want to learn more because you're going to see this as an inviting area where you're being encouraged to think more critically, to not take things for granted. Whereas CNN is going to tell you that you're wrong. That this is actually what freedom looks like. And so, yeah, being on the streets is not the end, but it's a really important step. Approaching the end of chapter three, Marx wrote, quote, Most assuredly, the Democrats believe in the trumpets before where blasts the walls of Jericho fell down. And as often as they stand before the ramparts of despotism, they seek to imitate the miracle. The revolutionary threats of the petite bourgeois and their democratic representatives are mere attempts to intimidate the antagonist. As soon as the struggle has to begin, the actors cease to take themselves al su and the action collapses completely like a prick bubble. End quote. Politicians will stake out popular positions only to fall back whenever they face their first paper dragon. This is Obama balking at the public option and card check union legislation because of Joe Lieberman. Or Biden giving up on $15 an hour because of Christian cinema. Let's not even bring up the parliamentarian. How many times do we need to be told to vote harder before people get fed up with the long-term reality that it just doesn't matter? Expect this next election really will be the most important election ever. For real, though. It will be. Trust me. It's the most important. You have to vote. I really fucking hope the parliamentarian at least radicalized a couple people. I want to read a quote from Lenin that changed my life. I mean, I don't want to say that in like a, you know, hyperbolic way, but seriously, this was a moment where things started to click. This is from State and Revolution. A democratic republic is the best possible political shell for capitalism, and therefore, once capital has gained control... Of this very best shell, it establishes its power so securely, so firmly, that no change either of persons or institutions or parties in the bourgeois republic can shake it. Just to the point about all of these different things coming up that, you know, present these impossible challenges, despite the party that's in existence at the time, you know, even the parties that ostensibly are meant to be there for the working class, capitalism has found a home in this place. And this facade, this farce of electoral politics obfuscates the reality. And, but once you understand that capitalism is hiding within this farce and drives its every motive, then you can effectively fight it. And no amount of voting is ever going to change that. It's like that quote that I believe I've said at least a few other times on this podcast from the first president of Tanzania, Julius Nier. The United States is also a one-party state, but with typical American extravagance, they have two of them. It's such a great encapsulation of exactly what Lenin is getting at there and what Marx is getting at in that quotation. There is no real difference once the bourgeoisie have claimed power on a state. 
it doesn't really matter exactly which party. It's just different means to the same end. This isn't real political action. It's actually inaction in the clothing of political action. Can I just say how perfect it is that the real deep state of the U.S. just takes Marxism and just flips it on its head and then feeds that to chuds and they believe it. Whereas I'm at the beginning of this episode saying that like the U.S. is literally the Fourth Reich and it's like working clandestinely to install fascism. That's just what it does. Like that's its MO. Whereas like the chuds just literally think that it's doing the same thing, but to install socialism. And then because of those two, that dialectical relationship, all the people in the middle who just do not give a fuck, who are just so well off that they just don't care. They're like, yeah, you guys both look crazy to me. Like, I just, you guys both seem like you're nuts. Like, <laughs> everything's fine. What are you talking about? Median incomes are up, whatever. Like, <laughs> That's just business as usual. It's so easy for them to just take theory and just literally reverse it. And then the chuds are just like, yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> well, that works. <laughs> the words are the words are scary. But that is one thing that is common in this text where like they'll call the thing that they don't want socialism and radicalism, even back then. It's so easy. And it's just like to your point, Mike, like hearing about the Marxists running the IMF makes you want to just <laughs> fucking hang yourself. All the all the things we hate and have a rooted principled analysis on Chubb just go, oh no, they're, they're the Marxists. It's like, ah! You point to the capitalist. Here's a capitalist. The guy says, I'm a capitalist. And then you just say, he's a secret communist. And the guys are like, yes, that makes perfect sense. Like, <laughs> Pelosi and like Biden will literally say, I'm capitalist, folks. We're a capitalist nation, folks. Oh, like, what? But not only that, and then do capitalist things, like do things for profit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, I want to check how much trouble I got into for a comment on a Democracy Now! post talking about how Trump said he would implement a dictatorship on just only for day one. Um, that it would be a dictatorship <laughs> to close the border wall and drill baby drill. And my comment was just, and this is different how? Every scaremongering, like fear-mongering thing that liberals are doing about the supposed Trump dictatorship day one or the project 2025 all they are doing is telling on themselves because if you say to either of the three of us like where will you be on day one of that dictatorship you know where i'm going to be sir you know what i'm going to be doing it is the liberals who are going to be accepting the dictatorship they're just already saying that like we're going to bend down and accept the dictatorship so i'm just saying like the response to that is i eagerly await your commensurate response to the dictatorship being implemented. I, I assume you will be out in the street, right? You will be getting all the, the measures that you thought were unreasonable before. You will be uh, for Second Amendment rights now because you thought that like, like you will be a leftist then, right? Because the dictatorship will be here. Fascism will be there. You will be on my side then, right? They're already saying that they will just bend over. So just throw it in their face. Just make it clear to them. I think to pull us into the text in the direction this conversation is going, Near the end of chapter four, as the bourgeoisie class falls to infighting, entering a period of political crisis, Marx wrote, quote, Thus, by now stigmatizing as socialistic what it had previously extolled as liberal, the bourgeoisie confesses that its own interests dictate that it should be delivered from the danger of its own rule, that to restore tranquility in the country, its bourgeois parliament must, 
first of all, be given its quietus. That to preserve its social power intact, its political power must be broken. That the individual bourgeois can continue to exploit the other classes and to enjoy undisturbed property, family, religion, and order only on condition that their class be condemned, along with the other classes, to like political nullity. That in order to save its purse, it must forfeit the crown. And the sword that is to safeguard it must at the same time be hung over its head as a sword of Damocles. This really breaks down the myth that Marx understood class as a unifying cabal-like political practice. Although the bourgeoisie controls all levers of power in society, according to Marx, their individual differences still drive a wedge deep enough to draw apart their system of political leadership. Now, none of this is itself alarming or new information. Civil wars take place within capitalist societies, and, in spite of Thomas Friedman's theory, nations with McDonald's in them have gone to war with each other. What draws me to this quotation are two things. The first is that the effort to better assert bourgeois power gets labeled socialistic way back in 1850. How little things have changed. And the second is that we appear to be experiencing something like this political crisis right now. Republicans and Democrats aren't suggesting anything of differing substance between the two, yet are driving a wedge in on-the-ground political frustration and action or reaction across the country. Is it possible to imagine a charismatic despot stepping into the fray and elevating a third way, whereby the bourgeois still prevails, but under less parliamentary authority? So are you asking if we can see fascism come to America? No way. Is the answer is yes. <laughs> no way, bro. To put further the quotation Marx wrote in the next paragraph, quote, Money as a gift and money as a loan, it was with prospects such as these that he hoped to lure the masses. Talking about Bonaparte. Donations and loans, the financial science of the lumpen proletariat, whether of high degree or low, is restricted to this. Such were the only springs Bonaparte knew how to set in action. Never has a pretender speculated more stupidly on the stupidity of the masses. End quote. Though it edges dangerously close to questions that may deserve to be left in the dustbin of 2016, I think what Marx is arguing here is that Bonaparte's overwhelming popularity among the lumpen proletariat allowed him to exert some power over the ruling classes. Trump certainly acted that way rhetorically, but he never executed on it. His legislative and executive record are rather Republican. Anybody that tries to convince me otherwise, I just don't believe it. Can we imagine something more sinister coming down the pike, though? Is there such a thing as a Trump that's actually able to harness the popular resentment of America to elevate himself to dictator? I mean, to tie it into this idea of basically Louis Napoleon bribing people, I think we could see a figure coming along and implementing something like a UBI. I mean, I'm not talking about Andrew Yang, but a UBI for a privileged class or ethnicity within this country to actually like... Real Americans. Right, yeah. But like to essentially like harness that white, petty bourgeois, fascist energy and actually bribe them into a movement and solidify their understanding of their own perceived 
class position within this country. And that is something that could be kind of dangerous in this moment. I, I mean, I think Trump is too crude to your point, Levi. He's nothing more than a Republican that, that just says things rhetorically, gin people up. But like in practice, he was nothing different. That's why we didn't see anything different on the imperialist stage. And we won't see anything different in the future when he probably wins the presidency in 2024. But can someone actually kind of harness that? And I think you probably could bribe sections of people and harness these long-seated divisions that are kind of integral to this nation that a lot of people haven't seen through yet through things like bribes to bolster a fascist movement even further. And I used to think that DeSantis would be the competent fascist that came came along, but he's we turned just didn't into, know enough about him. Yeah, I mean, now that we've all seen his yeah. five inch heels, I think we can discard with that notion. And I don't see anybody in the moment that could do that because neither the Democrats or the Republicans appear to have a very deep bench beyond Biden and Trump. But we'll see. Yeah, it really feels like it needs to be something other than the Democratic and Republican bench. It really needs to be somebody coming out from without. You know, it's the sort of fascist notion of being from the people, being elevated to the stature of leader. That's really core to that ideology that really just isn't here. That certainly gives the Republicans a bigger drafting pool because they don't have to just pull from political candidates. It's like, that's a big leg up. Or we could imagine somebody actually pulling the sort of Ross Perot act of being the self-funded billionaire that runs as an independent and actually does the things that. Nick mentioned, promises bribes, promises to provide to these people, promises to make the real ethno-America great again. I guess we won't see them until it's too late. I mean, it sounds like you guys are just painting the picture of Elon Musk doing like a Patriot payout, like just the, it's like the non-woke UBI. Yeah, but, and, but to that point about like, we won't see it until it pays off, I think we should organize with this in the back of our mind as if it was going to come to pass. If we're not organizing until the point where they're already gaining popularity, the game's already lost. Right. So, like, who are these potentially precarious classes that we can actually organize with? And how we look at that is going to depend upon a concrete analysis of concrete conditions, right? To, to quote Lenin again. And I don't mean that to be trite, but I mean that, like, in a real sense where, like, you had, like, the Black Panthers in the U.S. going out and saying, hey... These disenfranchised, lumpen proletariat black Americans who have been incarcerated and disenfranchised and impoverished through mechanisms of the state actually have revolutionary potential, right? So, I mean, we wouldn't in this case say, oh, they're lumpen proles and they're subject to these bribes that we're positing here because the context is completely different. So, moving into the conclusion, at the beginning of this concluding chapter, Marx wrote, what has become one of the most out-of-context quotations used to disparage Marx and Marxists. Quote, The Bonapartes are the dynasty of the peasants. Peasants form an enormous mass whose members live in similar conditions but without entering into manifold relations with each other. Thus, the great mass of the French nation is formed by the simple addition of homogolous magnitudes, much as potatoes in a sack form a sack of potatoes. Insofar as millions of families live under conditions of existence that separate their mode of life, their interests, and their culture from those of the other classes, and put them in hostile opposition to the latter, 
they form a class. Insofar as there is merely a local interconnection among these smallholding peasants and their identity of their interests form no community, no national bond, and no political organization among them, they do not constitute a class. There are a few readings of this quotation, probably the third most famous quotation from this work. One is Marx is insulting the intelligence and agency of the peasants. Throughout, there is ample evidence that Marx does not have a high opinion of the peasantry as political actors. Together with the lumpen proletariat, they provided the popular basis for Napoleon to justify his rise to emperor. These disparaging Marx might even call him an elitist, East Coast, alternative, intellectual, left-wing, Just say Jewish, this is taking forever. etc. Another explains that Marx is using a blunt metaphor to describe the difference between a class of itself versus a class for itself. Break this down. Class of itself are individuals all sharing the same relation to the means of production. This would be all peasants' relation to the land and all proletariats' relation to the factory. Under capitalism, the proletariat are brought together by the changing nature of capitalism together in cooperation within the factory while the physical nature of the peasants' work remains unchanging. Even if brought together in space by a certain instance, like potatoes thrown into a sack, both classes, both from each other and among each other, might be kept separate in mind by the competition fostered by the ideology of the petite bourgeois. Thus, a class for itself would be united in space, like a sack of potatoes, but also united in ideology, in political cooperation against the capitalist state. The second reading takes Marx in good faith, but I think both are actually useful. Marx dismissed the political capacity of the peasantry because of the lack of cooperation they experienced as a class which manifested itself in an intentionally insensitive metaphor. In reality, theorists after him have argued that the peasantry might make up the base for a revolution. This is looking at you Maoists. I'd argue further that Marx's frustration continues to be our frustration. Space has been annihilated by modern social media. Yet, the ideology of the petit bourgeois, rampant on these social media platforms, continues to keep people apart. We continue to be potatoes in a sack. Does this make sense, or does anyone disagree with Marx or my understanding of Marx here? We use this technology, social media, podcasts, etc., to help bring about these ideological changes. Are these just tools that are designed to keep us pitted against each other or separated? Mike, I think you alluded to this earlier when saying that these platforms, while they have a use, we have no idea how they actually work, who we're actually reaching and what they're actually thinking, that we have no idea how these algorithms function, yet we have a certain level of faith that they're working. Otherwise, why would we be doing this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like it's more than just the dopamine we get in response, uh, when we get a bunch of likes on our posts, but <laughs> there's a certain aspect yet yeah, for the algorithmic stuff. You definitely have no idea who you're reaching, but I don't think it's a coincidence that during this episode, even though you've never explicitly said, I think anything that should make me think of it, I've thought of two separate different ideas of how to better reach some people just using some social media things that I haven't been doing already that I plan on implementing like right after this, because 
it just seems so simple and I don't know why I hadn't thought of them earlier, but uh, something about like what we've been discussing has made me realize like having a Marxist study group on discord is not original. I just have never run one and I just have a discord already and I've just never used it to do that. But like having an explicitly like a channel just for studying a Marxist text and then taking your time with it to really depth delve into it. I, I'm going to do that. I feel like a collective way of doing a podcast. Like I feel like it'd be a good idea to, record the same episode a couple different times with various people who are like not even considering themselves podcast hosts, just like an audience of people and then get their feedback as you read through it, like material that they've never heard before. And then take all the best points that people contribute and then compile that into like one episode, even if it was like several different sessions. And I feel like it'd be more of a collective way of recording some podcasts, but they definitely can be used. It's just a matter of like, Using the ones that you actually do control versus the ones that are very much control of the people who you who who actually own them, not the the users themselves. I think the intentionality behind how you use that actually does matter, right? Because if you're doing the Instagram posts solely for the likes, detached from anything else, then again, you just are the potato in the sack that doesn't recognize it's part of a class, right? And we've encountered this before where you know, suddenly politics go aside and it becomes more about like exposure or individual clicks, right? And it's like, well, are you doing this for the right reasons? If you can harness these tools to actually connect with people, if this technology exists, it's not going away. I think we have to grapple with it at some level. Like we can't just abandon it as a terrain of struggle because our enemies are certainly utilizing it as a terrain of struggle. How do we do this and how do we utilize this for a communizing purpose. It's not going to be perfect because it's controlled by the capitalist class at some level, but there are certain boundaries that we can push in terms of how we can use this. I mean, I even think about it in terms of organizing. I mean, organizing like with a party, like it is a platform to connect with people, to share events, to demonstrate the power of the working class, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a place for people to actually find you. It can be the streets and this. So I don't think we should abandon it. We've actually had a pretty similar conversation in a previous Marx episode and talking about cooperation versus competition. While I was the guy that saw very little use or value in outright competition, whatever really motivates us and allows us to connect to more people, to educate more people, to create more conversations, to speak to people on their own grounds, to understand what they're thinking is valuable. At the same time, using social media for the sake of social media, for the clicks, for the cloud, or whatever that BS is that social media sort of instigates on itself, is dangerous. We really just want to keep to our values. But you know, those algorithms really push us to not hold on to our values. If we want to get millions of followers, we can't be pushing this. If we wanted to have a profitable podcast, this, uh, this is not the realm. This is not what we'd be talking about. We'd be doing, I don't know, reading Wikipedia articles with some half-wit How comedian. How about them trans people? Like, I mean, seriously, like, that's all you have to do, it seems like. I mean, we'd be anarchists at the very least, like, and comics. <laughs> <laughs> we just have to be careful that a lot of these tools that we're using are the tools of oppression if used in a different way. And if we're not critical about them, they sort of slip into that mode. That's how we see people sort of fall into these sugar daddy situations or get bought into the system in the sort of Burkean sense that a lot of people can be bribed into thinking that 
they're in charge. The petite bourgeois ideology is very strong. Definitely. And it's just like that incentive to individualize and balkanize us all over again Mm -hmm. to keep us into manageable little constituent parts rather than a sack of potatoes that actually has class consciousness. And I'm not quite sure that we're the people to discuss how to do this, but I think that there is a value in the concept of the lumpen proletariat being reached, that these people that have signed off, that are unemployable, unemployed, prison, have the greatest propensity, as Marx argues, to fall into common sense arguments but, and resentment. But they are just as capable of anyone else as seeing things for what they are. They just need to be reached. And I think in a way, social media is actually a way to reach people that are relatively disengaged or resentful. But I don't know enough about social media to comment any further. On a broad level, Levi, about reaching people, and I want to try to tie it back to, I guess, Marx's analysis of the peasantry at this time. I do think at some level, when we talk about analyzing the revolutionary potential of a class, concrete conditions, where you can affect change, it does kind of sound distant and cold a little bit, but I do think it becomes a numbers game a little bit. The peasantry, just again, given their conditions at that time and the ideology that maybe not infected everybody, but infected a lot of them at that point, might have made them like the class at that point in time that you wouldn't want to focus on building a revolution around just because of the conditions that were existing at that time. So, you know, maybe there is the equivalent of the peasantry in this country at this point, and you're probably just going to beat your head against the wall and spend a lot of energy with little return, not to leave those people behind necessarily and like welcome them when they want to come in. But is that the locus of your organizing to bring back Huey Newton and some of the things that he talked about? You know, he talked about, look, these are the communities that we have connections with. These are the people that we can affect. These are the people that have grievances with the system that we're trying to overthrow. How do we build a revolutionary program that can affect those people. So I think that's what organizers should be thinking about. And that may change depending on your geography. Like organizing in urban Pittsburgh or urban New York may differ than bumfuck Pennsylvania. That's okay. Hopefully we can connect those things later down the line. Analyzing the conditions that you can affect. And again, it is an efficiency thing at some level because we are running out of time. Go back to the idea of real politique a little bit. I think in organization and how you actually radicalize people, there is an element of that. And I don't want to say that people that you analyze in this on a broad basis can't be reached. But when you're strategizing, what's the biggest payout? Right. You just sort of have to recognize your own limits or the limits of the form that you're engaging in. Yes. And I think in a way, Mike, that's kind of what you're speaking to when you're talking about this idea of put words in your mouth, unfortunately to democratize the form of the podcast. Because really, it's very undemocratic. It's the three of us discussing a text that's going to be listened to passively by an audience. There's no way for them to really interrupt us and to discuss. But your form is trying to sort of break that wall and to bring in as many voices as possible. And just to remind people, Marx did not just sit around and write. That's what we have of him today. And he did eventually get a platform after the Paris Commune, but he did join and create many on-the-ground organizations. 
He spoke to and with audiences that didn't necessarily agree with him. By the end of his life, he actually softened on his position on the Lumpen proletariat as he became more and more interested in the Russian Empire. I think that there's actually this way of deifying Marx as this godlike individual that was able to come up with all of these ideas on his own. In reality, there's a whole part of Marx that we have no idea about because those records just don't necessarily exist. Who did he speak to when he was marching in the streets of London? Who did he talk to when he was going through Germany? We don't know. But he was there. He was at these meetings. He was in tons of meetings. He was closed door. He was discussing. He was also writing all of these great polemics, which we do have. But that's only half of his political education and involvement, if even that. The form and the substance that we have to embrace is what we have in front of us. And we have to use that to the best of our ability at any given time. The listeners can't hear me nodding, but I'm, I'm nodding a lot. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> me too. As a closing statement, something that we actually talked about at the beginning of the first part. On June 5th, 1972, preeminent activist historian Stanton Lind received a consoling letter from his comrade and friend, Gil Green. In the letter, Green quoted extensively from the 18th Brumaire. He argued, using the quotation from chapter one we talked about last episode, that bourgeois move from success to success while the proletariat move forward, then back, until, at some point, they can no longer be pushed back. At this point, Green argued, they might have learned so much in their defeats that they'll win the revolution next time around. Lind, reflecting on the great political and personal defeats of the new left, wrote, and it's the only mark he made in the rather long letter, Have we? The frustration and incredulity is palatable in the thick, hurried scroll. To end on kind of a downer note, what Marx described in the 18th Brumaire has occurred many times since 1851. It happened with Mussolini and Hitler. It goes away to explaining Santiago Abscal, Javier Bolsonaro, Rodrigo Duterte, Marie Le Pen, Javier Millel, Victor Orban, Georgia Maloney, Gerritz Wilders, and other neo-fascists. Of course, it's been used also to explain Trump. It's one thing to say, we've learned, only to face Bonaparte after Bonaparte. Do we have any signs that things are going the right direction? That the revolution will occur? Or is Marx, like Gil Green, just a utopian optimist? And is that such a bad thing? Optimism is a requirement. I mean, honestly, though, this is hard work. Organizing is hard work. Educating is hard work. It's thankless work a lot of times. We'd love to be reaching millions of people. We're not. I, you know, like just let's, let's be honest with ourselves. We're not. I mean, on the ground level, it's a victory when we bring somebody new into the movement. And I think we have to be okay with that at this point in time. And I think we have to find the hope in humanity to do better and be better. It's, we're, we're faced with a strong force arrayed against us. And if we're nihilistic, pessimistic at every turn, we're never going to win. So I don't think it's a bad thing to be an optimist. I mean, again, we have to have a realistic appraisal to not fall into like 
tactical and strategic defeats to the best of our abilities, that is going to happen. But we can't abandon optimism because otherwise we're just all going to sit around and do nothing. I do think it's extremely hopeful that thousands of people every night in the Imperial Corps are out for Palestine at this moment in time. Is everybody out there? Do they have the perfect political line? No. But they're out there on a human level to call for a better world. And we just need to be able to get out there and meet them and help them advance along. And I think there's a lot of people out there doing that work at this point in time. And I think in this moment, despite the horror that's going on in Gaza, that's happening here. And then in Gaza, the spirit of the resistance hasn't faded. These people are still fighting. So at a minimum, we can go out and still fight. Yeah, Levi, I think that's a really good point to ask if Marx was just another utopian optimist. And that really makes me realize how just how much of a genius Marx was for being able to do both, to not only point out that there is a better alternative uh, with his visions for like what species being dictates for what people should actually be doing with societies rather than capitalist, individualist competition and ruthless individualism, but also being able to critique capitalism. It's not like he just did the college level, this all sucks, and I feel like there should be something better. (laughs) He also created a vision for what that better future could be, and then also critiqued capitalism on its own terms. Like This makes me have a new appreciation for things like Das Capital, like the really boring shit where he really goes through and has a better critique of what is going on than the quote-unquote economists now who say everything is just too socialist, even though everything is very obviously too capitalist. It's like, when Marx stops being right about everything, then yeah, he will be the utopian optimist. Then he will be the Gil Green or whoever we want to criticize. But Marx continues to be right, and he just continues to do it for hundreds of years beyond the grave, which is just, it's really admirable. I hate to end on like the, the same note that I end on every time, which is the tankies are right, just listen to us, but like, what else can I do? Like, <laughs> Yeah, and we're here waiting to to work with you. And I think to build off you both, we're facing overwhelming odds. Palestinians are facing the world's most advanced, highly financed, best organized militaries in the world. Will Hamas crush the IDF? I don't know. But they have radicalized and reached hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, to consider the revolutionaries, to consider Marx, Lenin, Mao, the Black Panthers, Ho Chi Minh. They're forcing people to reconsider what they're hearing from the, their superiors. And while we don't have that kind of platform, we're also not putting ourselves on that kind of line. We're trying to do our small part, but it, every little bit is important. We're here to welcome you. If you're radicalized and you're looking for the next step, Go out and organize. Join something. Be out there. One kind of thing just to add on to that, too, that I think was a moment of realization for me was I was on a long drive back from another D.C. march with one of my comrades. And, you know, he was an older comrade. He's been doing this for a long, long time. And we kind of both came to this point. At that individual level, it doesn't have to be us that's part of the revolution, as long as we're carrying this ideology forward, we've been part of that. We can be part. And it doesn't matter if anybody fucking remembers our names or not. I'll be happy if I die knowing that I carried this forward in some small way. 
It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be any of us. It's never going to be one individual. But let's be part of a movement. Makes all those assholes who like want to vote shame you. But like, when's a revolution happening, bro? It makes that ring a lot more hollow when you realize it's ongoing. It's always right. been ongoing. Like humanity is ongoing in a revolution. You're just not part of it because you're fucking voting for Biden, you piece of shit. Like, <laughs> you're voting for the genocide and you think you're a progressive. Fuck you. Yeah. Stop. Just stop. Well, to give the last word to a conversation that a man had with Henry Kissinger, the dearly departed, Zhao Enlai was asked by Kissinger what he thought of the French Revolution, and he said that time will tell. We don't know where these revolutions are going, when they started, or if they're already on their way. Time's going to tell. We're not doing it ourselves. We're part of a larger movement that spans time and place. Damn, Kissinger said that. Joe, Joe and Lai said that. <laughs> oh, okay, thank you. I was about to give credit to Kissinger. I was like, damn, that's a really smart response. Like, that's like a genius level. <laughs> yeah, too soon. Levi, thanks for putting this together, man. As always, Mike, thanks for joining us, buddy. It's always a lot of fun. Great conversation. For the listeners, you know, go out and check out Turn Leftist. Uh, Join the reading group and turn left this Discord. I know that's open for everybody, right, Mike? So I, that, that's going to force me to start it by the time this comes out. Thank you, bro. Do that. Check out everything they do over there. Internalize the information, then act upon it. Again, we appreciate your support, subscription for the show, your listens, share it around. Hopefully, it helps people along the way. More importantly than anything, as we've been harping on all night tonight, go out and get organized. There's m- people out in the street just waiting to talk to you and help you feel less politically isolated and help you be part of something to build a better world. We're out there. Have a good rest of your night. Um, free Palestine. Oh, yeah. Adios, personas. So they can know how-